Well, if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking this morning at chapter 9, beginning at verse 24, and we're going to go down through chapter 10, verse 13. If you don't have your own copy of the scriptures, the Pew Bible might be in front of you. It's on page 957, 958. If you don't want to do that, it's been printed for you in your bulletin, and you can feel free to follow along there. We'd love to for you to have a copy of the scripture in front of you. Well, I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. My name is Sean Slate. I'm the pastor here, and we are so thankful to have you with us this morning because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be on your way back from Kentucky after the great Fun Belt win last night, which was pretty amazing. Patty Long just gave a pump of the fist. She's pumped. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Go, go Vols. Uh, or you could be out at uh, Mighty Mud learning how to make plates and uh, nativity sets. Or you could be like massaging your facial hair follicles for No Shave November. Or you could be resetting your Premier League soccer fantasy team because every week you lose uh, to Josh Flory. And that's disappointing. But you're not. Uh, you're here. And so I really do want to thank you for coming. It's great to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer. Well, Redeemer's a church, and what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, he's the Messiah, he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week, as his people, we gather together to worship him and learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. And so we watch games, we go for bike rides, we uh, hang out, we read the Bible, we pray together, all to remind each other of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love, as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family and to our friends and to our neighbors who are here in Urban University, Knoxville, and hopefully in some way it would spill out to the entire world. That's who we are. People trying to learn how to love God, trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that here at the end of ordinary time here in the fall, we are thinking about the fruit of the Spirit. And the reason that we have taken up this series on the fruit of the Spirit is because so often when I talk about reflecting the love of God, so many of us begin to think about all the things that we've got to go do. And so we confuse our activity with our spirituality. But Christianity is all about God and what he has done and what he is doing. And what is he doing? He is working his life into his people. And so if that is true, we've got to ask ourselves, do we see the life of God being worked into us? Are we growing in things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Not only what are we doing, but who are we becoming? And so this week, as we consider the last fruit in the list, I want us to consider the fruit of self-control. All right, the fruit of self-control. So that in mind, let's look together. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. We'll go down to chapter 10, verse 13. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. 
So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching of it? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who is not hidden nor silent, but for being a God who delights to reveal himself. Thank you for being one who is not silent. Thank you for your kindness and your compassion to us in giving us your word. And we thank you that it has come to us in these scriptures by your spirit. But ultimately, we thank you that you have come to us and revealed yourself to us in the person and work of Christ. And so now over these next few moments, as we attend unto your word, we ask that your spirit would attend unto us, that we might see lovely things of you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we want to consider the last fruit of the Spirit, this fruit of self-control. We'll have two more sermons to conclude this series, but for this morning, we want to think about the fruit of self-control. And it would be a mistake uh, for us to assume that self-control is distinct from all the other fruit. I mean, it's hard to think about things like love and joy and peace and then to throw self-control into them. And it is easy for us to think about all these different fruits as different fruits. And yet, when we read this, what we notice is that it is the fruit of the Spirit. It is not the fruits of the Spirit. This is one thing. It is one fruit with many flavors And the reason for this is because when the Spirit unites us to Jesus, he unites us to all of Jesus, to everything, right? This isn't a cornucopia of fruits that you can reach in and pull one fruit out and say, I'm going to work on this one. Or you reach in and say, I don't really like that one. That's too difficult. That's too complicated, right? This is one fruit, many flavors. God unites us to himself by his Holy Spirit, all of him. Right? It's like John Legend sings, right? All, I give my all 
to you, right? All of me to all of you. And the Spirit gives us all of Jesus, not parts of Jesus. And therefore, self-control isn't this sort of self-absorbed control of your life for the sake of control or for the sake of discipline. It is the directing of our lives towards the giving of ourselves in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and so on. You see, self-control is that which directs this fruit of Christ in our lives. That is the goal to which we aim, that we would be conformed to the likeness of the Son of God, that we would know the love of the Father and reflect it into the world. That's the goal. That's the prize. And that's why Paul says in verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And so what Paul is doing is he's inviting us to think uh, about athletes, The Corinthian church was really proud of the famous biannual Isthmian Games, which were second only to the Olympic Games in prestige and in popularity, and it was right nearby, and so they celebrated those things. And so Paul was saying, think about those athletes. Think about how they run. Think about how they compete. Think about how they train their bodies and they prepare themselves and give themselves to winning this little wreath that they place upon their their heads, this imperishable prize that or this perishable prize that will go away, right? Contextually, if Paul had been writing to us here in Knoxville, he probably would have said, think about the Vols, and think about how they give their all, right, for Tennessee today. Right? He'd say, think about those swimmers who are in the pool at 5 a.m. Think about the basketball team and how they're over at Thompson Bowling and they're running suicides. Think about the football team who's learned to pass and learned to catch and learned to tackle and uh, doing grass drills. And think of, don't hiss me, and uh, think about, uh, they beat Kentucky, and uh, right? Think about the food that they eat and the smoothies that they make and the weights that they lift. I mean, think about all these things that they say no to in order to say yes to the victory. But often when we think about this idea of self-control, we often think uh, not of athletes, which we wish we could be, but we think of the Tasmanian devil, right? He's just sort of spinning and grunting and grumbling. He can't get his words out. He's just crazy, out of control, like a tornado spinning around here and there. And often that's how we feel, spinning out of control, right? And money and sexing and eating and anger and the list could go on and on. But the irony is that we could be out of control in a variety of ways. It's not just out of control like the Tasmanian devil. We could also be out of control with control. We could be out of control like Leslie Nope uh, on Parks and Rec, who loves order, right? Who loves her notebooks and loves her systems and demands that everybody kind of be in her system and do things her way. And she's out of control and everyone's out of control around her. And the Leslie Nopes of the world are out of control with their control. And often the Leslie Nopes are those who feel out of control and they use it. They use control to feel safe to control their environments, to not need, to not be afraid. And then they tend to suppress. And they tend to starve their desires so that they'll never feel sort of any disappointment. But biblical self-control isn't about suppressing our desires. Biblical self-control is about desiring the right things rightly. 
to passionately desiring the things of God. The ancients loved self-control. It was seen as the highest virtue, and they loved it because self-control was about the mastery of self. And so they loved the uh, discipline for discipline's sake. They loved control for control's sake. They, they loved discipline and control and self-control for themselves because it showed that you were a master. It showed that you were good and that you were right. But biblical self-control isn't something that we do for ourselves. Biblical self-control comes when we want something more than we want ourselves. Biblical self-control comes when we want something more than we want ourselves. I mean, think about it. If you live for yourself, you will be out of control with your desires. Our desires are so fleeting. What I want right now is not what I want in 30 minutes. What I want in my 30s is not what I want in my 40s, is not what I want in my 50s, is not what I want when I'm five, right? Our desires are fleeting, and they come, and they go, and they leave us feeling crazy. And then what happens when your desires are the things that you live for, and you don't achieve them? Who are you, and what do you become? Think about uh, the song, Eight Mile, uh, by Eminem, maybe you've even seen the movie. It's about this aspiring young rapper who uh, directs his entire life to achieving the goal of success and fame. And so he uh, practices and he rehearses and he gets booed off stage and he, uh, you know, he gives up all these good things to reach this goal of fame. And listen to what he says in his song. He says, success is my only insert some cuss words, option, failure's not. Mom, I love you, but this trail has got to go. I cannot grow old in Salem's Rock a lot. So here I go. This is my shot. Feet fail me not because maybe the only opportunity that I got. And what he's saying, I don't know if you heard it or not, is this. I am nothing if I do not succeed. I'm nothing if I don't succeed. And so he gives everything to his success, but his success and his desires are all about him, and it's about his success uh, or his failure, regardless of his mom and his children. And he gives himself to these things, but there's no love, and there's no joy, and there's no peace or patience or kindness or goodness or gentleness. It's only him and his success or his failure. It's only him and the vomit on his sweater that looks like mom's spaghetti, which is earlier in the song, right? And, uh, and that's how many of us, right, live our lives. We're out of control for success. We're out of control to prove that we are enough. A couple of weeks ago, the staff and I went to a conference in Nashville, Tennessee, and one of the speakers said something that really resonated with me, and he said this, for me, it's easier to admit that I'm a sinner than a failure. For many of us, it's easier to admit that we are sinners than that we are failures. And he went on to say, my whole life has been about controlling my life and protecting myself from failure until I lost my job. Until I lost the job at the church that I planted, until I lost the job that I had pastored for 10 years, until I had to go into my office and pack up my office that was in the building that I had built for my church. 
And then I had to drive away in a U-Haul, and as I drove away, I was confronted by my failure. It was easy to admit that God loves sinners, but I could not believe that he would still love a failure. I'd controlled my whole life to be successful. I'd controlled my whole life to have people like me and to expect certain things from me. But what I had learned is that God didn't want my work. He didn't want my control. He didn't want my success. What he wanted was me. God wants you. Seems to me that many of us are living out of control in order to be successful and to prove that we are enough. But God isn't really concerned about that. He's not really concerned about your work or your success. And what I think is that our goals for success and to be enough are just too small. What God wants is he wants you. I think one of the scarier things is that oftentimes we achieve the very things we're striving for. We get the success that we've been out of control trying to find. And oftentimes that's when it gets really hard. Because when we achieve that success, we often find that we're verse 26. We've just been boxing and beating against the air. We achieved it. We thought it would be everything. We thought it would be solid and fulfilling. And yet it's like sand just sort of sifting through our fingers. In 2016, uh, Jim Carrey uh, was one of the presenters at the Golden Globe Awards. And as he walked out on stage, the announcer said, please welcome two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And so Jim Carrey takes the microphone and he says, thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just some guy who's going to sleep. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. And when I dream my dreams at night, I don't just dream any old dream, but I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, because then I would be enough. And finally, it would all be true, and I could stop this terrible search You hear what he's saying? So often our lives are out of control to reach a goal only to find that it's never enough. Only to find that there's something else. Only to find that I'm not satisfied. And what God is telling us and what Paul in particular is telling us here in this passage is that Jesus is enough. That Jesus really is enough. That he is the prize that is imperishable. See, Christian self-control is neither the ordering of our lives to get what we want, nor is it just saying no and having no desires or no dreams. Christian self-control is all about saying yes to Jesus. And because we say yes to Jesus, we now say no to those things that cause shame and hiding. We say no to those works of the flesh, those things like sensuality and impurity and enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of rage and rivalries and dissensions and envy and divisions, right? We say no to those things, to that, to that life of shame and that life of hiding. We say no to it in order to say yes to the beautiful life 
of God, to the beautiful things of God, to say yes to those beautiful things of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. And by saying yes to these things, we begin to say yes to him. Yes to the one who loves us. Yes to the one who rejoices over us. Yes to the one who is gentle. Yes to the one who is kind and patient and good and faithful towards us. We say yes to Christ. It's like when we say yes to that woman or to that man in marriage. We say yes. I will give my life to you. And I will say no to all others because you are the one that I desire. You are the one that I love. You are the one that I want. And without you, I would rather not go on. And the goal of the Christian life is that we would say yes to Jesus. That we would say yes to him over and over and over again. I mean, God's desire, as Paul has told us in Romans 8, is that we would be conformed to his image, that we would know and be united to the love of God. And yet, sadly, we tend to lose control, and we aim not for him, but we aim for those good things that he promises us. And we want those good things more than we actually want him, and so we settle for lesser things. And in those moments, we'll do whatever it takes to get the thing that we want. And so I want a good thing. I want something like satisfaction. And so rather than waiting and looking to God, I make a lot of brownies. And I eat them all. Or I want to feel joy. And so I go on the internet and I buy a lot of things. Or I want my way. And I want my way now. And so I demand it and I fight. I want comfort, and so I make Colorado brownies, or I drink a lot. I want revenge, and so I gossip, right? I want connection, and so I sex. I want control, and so I starve myself, or I deny myself, or I deny others. But Christian self-control is one that says no, not for the sake of saying no, But it says no in order to say yes to greater things, to those things that are about real connection and real freedom and real satisfaction and real comfort and real rest and real relationships. We say no in order to free us to pursue the beautiful way of Jesus. And so Paul then begins to tell us our story. That's what he's doing in chapter 10. He tells us who we are. And he says, by faith... Right? The story of God's people is your story. The exodus is your story. Notice what he says in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness." 
And so what Paul's doing here is he is reminding us and he is warning us of the dangers of a lack of self-control. He's warning us of the ramifications of our forefathers who lost control in the wilderness. You might remember that our forefathers in the wilderness, uh, before the wilderness, they were enslaved in Egypt. And God in his kindness came and he delivered them from that slavery and he led them by the cloud and he parted the Red Sea so that they might be saved. And then as they followed Moses, God was providing food for them and drink for them and he led them into the promised land, this land that was flowing with milk and honey, this land that was filled with blessing, this land that Hebrews chapter five describes as the land of promised rest. Rest from slavery, rest from work, rest from evil, rest from weariness, rest from our enemies. And through all this, what God was doing was he was inviting, he was leading his people back to himself. But our story was the story that lacked self-control. And so when Moses was up on the mountain a little too long for their comfort, they looked away from God. And they looked to the gods of the wilderness and they made their own god, the golden calf, and they bowed down to it and they worshipped it and then they got up to play. And in doing so, many died. Or when they scouted out the land and they saw that this land was good, but they saw there were these other nations that lived in the land and those nations were bigger than them and stronger than them. And so what did they do? They began to grumble against God. And they said, What that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And what they were saying was that the predictability and the comfort of slavery was better than life with God. That the comfort and predictability of slavery was better than being led by God himself. That is sad. And yet that is the way many of us often feel. Life with a bottle is easier than life with God. Life with pornography is easier and more predictable than life with God, life filled with money, life that's safe, life with that destructive relationship. It is better, it is easier than a life with God. And so the people began to rebel and they didn't want to follow after Moses. They began to try to reject his authority, reject his leadership, and in doing so they rejected God and many of them lost their lives in the wilderness. And they began to test God, right? Tired of the food that he'd been providing, looking at the land that God had promised and doubting that he would ever give them what he had promised. And so they began to withdraw from God. They began to withdraw from his ways. And a generation died in the wilderness. And so the story of God's people is the story of grumbling and complaining, testing and turning away. And he tells us this story to remind us that despite our unfaithfulness, God proves himself over and over again to be faithful. He is reminding us and telling us 
I know you want the promises of God, but there are no, there is no way to receive those promises apart from his hand. In fact, he is saying there are no promises without him. Notice he goes on in verse 4, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. This is an amazing piece because what he's saying is the people of God often believe that they've been abandoned by him. But he's saying, remember, God had never abandoned you. God is always with you. He is the one who was feeding you. He is the one who was providing for you and protecting you. He is the one who was delivering from all of your enemies. He was the one who meets us in our failures. And God proved it in the wilderness, and he continues to prove it all the way throughout history, ultimately culminating in his death on the cross, being faithful to an unfaithful people, proving his power as he comes up from the grave. And promising as he's been faithful in the past, he will always be faithful and he will return for his people. He is telling us in verse 13 that he is a faithful God. And sadly, it seems to me as if we are often much like our fathers and mothers. We, too, are looking for a home. We're looking for rest and we want it and we want it now. And we want that. But the question for us is this, do we want him and we grumble and we complain and we put God to the test and we give in to these lesser things, things that we know never satisfy us, things that we know leave us in shame and in hiding, things that enslave us once again. And Paul is saying, remember that God is faithful. Remember that he will not abandon you. Remember that he will bring you into the full and final rest of his presence. And notice the language that Paul is using as he says these things. He says, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the seas. And by using this language, he's inviting us to remember our baptism. That just as our forefathers were led by the cloud and delivered through the sea as they followed Moses, we too, as we follow Jesus, will be led. We too, as we follow Jesus, will be provided for. And he will lead us into that promised rest that he has promised his people. He doesn't just talk of baptism. He uses this language of spiritual food and spiritual drink. Again, we're supposed to think about the Lord's Supper here. Chapter 11 is all about the Lord's Supper. It flows right out of this. We're to remember the Lord's Supper. And as we take the supper, we're reminded that God is with us, that it's God who feeds us, it's God who provides for us, it's God that nourishes us in a way that nothing else can. It's God who himself is the bread of life. And so every time we eat at this table, every time we drink of this cup, we're reminded that we're his and that he is ours. And as we eat, we're reminded of that great promise that he will return. And when he returns, all that we have been longing for, all that we are searching for, will be found in him. You see, as Christians, this is who we are. Baptized, set apart by God as his children, loved, forgiven, led, freed to follow him. 
and fed by him and nourished by him all along the way to dwell once again in the promise of his presence. That is the goal to which we are headed. And that is the end to which we must direct our lives. I love uh, old cemeteries. And uh, during the late 1800s and the early 1900s, one of the most popular things for Christians to have engraved on their tombstone was Psalm 17. Uh, I shall be satisfied when I awake with your likeness. Isn't that great? I shall be satisfied when I awake with your likeness. And by doing this, it was a final act of self-control. As in the midst of their suffering, as the end was coming, they ordered their very existence, even their death, towards the great goal of God and his presence, confessing that even now, even though I am suffering, even though I am struggling, even though I long for more, even though I long to be in your presence, not by spirit, but in the flesh, even though I long for these things, even though I've struggled all along the way, I've been baptized and I've been fed by the promises of God and you are faithful and I will awake and I will be satisfied with you and your likeness. God will transform us, making us who we've always longed to be in the joy of his presence. That is the end to which we walk That is the end to which we turn our lives and shape our lives for his glory, for our good, as we rest in his promise. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to be yours, baptized, marked out, fed by you, nourished all along the way. Feed us that we might be controlled by you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.